0: Humans are viewed as a consumers for the industry. Facebook doesn't see you as a human. They see you as a consumer. Google doesn't see you as a human. They don't even care. They don't care about your humanity. They care about your pocket money, right? They will use you as far as you are a consumer. So the entire web society, the Web 2.0, was designed around converting humans into consumers.
1: Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donald Laughlin, and each week, I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular lightbulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you are hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Our guest this week, Carlos Marrera, is a timely and highly relevant addition to the show. We've talked about ethics and human rights and tech. We've talked about artificial intelligence, smart drones, blockchain, electric vehicles, and more. The truth is we live in an age where advancements in technology accelerate change also bring risk, risk to our privacy, identity, our security, our assets. Well, Carlos Marrera is a fierce advocate for protecting our digital rights in this brave new world. Throughout his career, he has worked to ensure that in our relationship with technology, humans come out ahead. Carlos Marrera is the co-author of The Transhuman Code, How to Program Your Future, a book which celebrates the use of technology as a tool. His book outlines a seven-point manifesto, a code of conduct designed to ensure that together we're building a better future for humanity, and that humans' lives are improved, not damaged by technological advances. Carlos is also CEO of WiseKey, a cybersecurity company that works to protect our data and digital identities. Notably, WiseKey has also recently partnered with Casper Labs, a leading blockchain network to build a secure marketplace for buying and selling NFTs. During the first two decades of his career at the United Nations and the World Economic Forum, Carlos worked with massive amounts of data. It was there that he learned firsthand that humans should never be reduced to just a number. Here's how his human-centric approach got started before it happened for Carlos. So let's go back to your earlier years before you were this phenomenon like working, you know, with the United Nations and that, where did you grow up? So
0: I, I born in Spain, the southern part of Spain. My father was a hotel entrepreneur doing tourists in the southern part of Spain, Andalusia, which is a beautiful area of Spain. And actually I came to Switzerland very young. I was 20 years old to study. My first vocation was to continue studies in tourists, but I didn't like it. Then I finished my university in economics and then in computer science, and then I joined the United Nations. I was very young. I was only 22 when I joined the UN. So it was an amazing, inspirational job for you when you were 22 years old and you joined the UN. You really want to fix the world, right?
1: Yeah. Well, it's not the type of job you just walk in with an application and say, I'm here to apply, right? (laughs) So your father was an entrepreneur in hospitality. So you were exposed in Spain's beautiful country to be exposed to kind of an international lens of the world. Were you enamored at a very young age about other cultures and people and languages that kind of led up to going to the United Nations?
0: Yeah, actually, the fact that I was surrounded by hospitality, business, and tourists during my entire young life. I speak five languages, right? So when you speak languages uh, when you are very young, you can engage with people in their own language. And this is the best way to learn, because normally, if you don't speak the language of the other person, you can never get everything for that person. You know, you have to translate. Your brain is not elastic enough. So I learned about the importance of a multi-stakeholder approach on humans. And, and, and Switzerland, Geneva, it was very symbolic for me because it's the city of the peace. You know, is where everybody comes to negotiate peace. Geneva is, a, is an amazing city because all the international organizations are here. The UN is here. The uh, multi-stakeholder environment, it crystallizes in a very small city. And it's a great, great place to develop further that humanity aspect, which has guided me the entire career, right? I mean, how can we create a human-centric society where humans are in control, where humans are protecting themselves, developing technologies that will not destroy them? I mean, putting human in the center of gravity, which has been my vocation, both in the UN and then later when I founded Weisskeem.
1: So I want to go back to, this is the 80s, right? This is pre-networking. This is pre-internet, public internet. Mobile phones were just kind of like, I don't know. I think Motorola might have introduced something in that period. The Berlin Wall was still standing. Russia hadn't collapsed. And America had an actor for president. (laughs) So you're in this kind of really pivotal, critical, essential time, that things are just connecting. What were the problems at hand when you entered as an intern? What were the biggest problems that you were looking at at that stage before you ultimately became the ultimate cybersecurity expert?
0: So, so when I, when the first thing I realized, and that was really a shock for me, was how rich the UN were on data, you know, data on health, data on labor data on international trade, data on patents, all of that data were centralized in a macro computer center at that time powered by supercomputers. And that data was only available to us internally in the UN, to people working in the UN, because the only way that you could connect to that centralized uh, supercomputer was through a dumb terminal. You know That that was the uh, dumb terminal generation. And those dumb terminals cost you a lot of money. You pay something like $30,000 per year just to be connected, one terminal. So, you know, when you are young and you enter into the UN, you really go by the mission statement of the UN, which is to protect nations, protect humans, protect humanity, right, against each other. And then I say, hey, this is kind of an elitist organization where everybody gets a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, but we are not able to transfer that knowledge to so the members of the United Nations, which is developing countries, what about if I put a terminal in Uganda or a terminal in Tanzania, and I let these guys to have the same access of information I have, they will flourish in, in whatever they do, in their studies, in their companies. So my immediate vision, and I am kind of connector, that's how what I like. I like to connect people. I like to connect computers. I like to connect processes. And, and at that time, I started to realize that if I will find a way technically to connect developing countries to that huge amount of data, they will accelerate their transformation. So that was kind of a mission statement for me inside organization, but it was very difficult because more you go from the node, uh, more complex is telecommunication issues, connectivity issues, cybersecurity issues emerge and multiply farther you are from where the data resides, right? So that was the 80s. This coincided with the uh, announcement of Bill Gates of the PC, the microcomputer, the personal computer, which also was a revolution in the United States, because before that, people will have to pay to compute $30 per search. I remember where the time where a Google search will cost you $30 one search. And obviously, only very rich institutions have access to data. So when the PC came, I say, "Wow! I mean, we can play a major role to universalize information. Information should be distributed, and people with a PC, which at that time was very expensive. At that time, a PC was something like fifteen thousand dollars. So not everybody can have it, but it was still cheaper than a dumb terminal. Because dumb terminal is something like thirty thousand dollars per year." So I went actually to to the United States at that time. We bought PCs and we started to develop code software that emulates the mainframe. So the idea was rather being connected to my database real time, which requires telecommunication and all the one-to-one connections, I rather download the data in my PC and then with a software like Excel, like uh, Lotus 1, 2, 3 at that time, we're going to be able to analyze the data and, and get some results in that data to my work. So that was the resolution. Actually, when I become an expert and I start to travel the world, I cover something like 180 countries and I was traveling nearly 11 months per year globally was to connect developing countries with microcomputers to the headquarters data.
1: So the Transhuman Code is your book. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But when you were working at the United Nations, you were there 17 years, but say, you know, within that first five to 10 years, but you're already thinking about your philosophy of the code. And you know, was this beginning to shape in your mind?
0: Totally. And the reason why is because and maybe the fact that I also speak many languages. Allow me to understand why developing countries are always developing countries. I mean, the, the world already developing It's a negative world, right? I mean, why are you still developing after 20 years trying to become a developed country? And the, the answer I immediately got is, is that people are not able to unleash our potential in developing countries. So I realized that there are so many intelligent people, amazing skilled people, that because they didn't have the same computer I have in Geneva connected to data. They were unable to develop their skills. So, so their skills were sacrificed on the fact that technology was not arriving. And then uh, I started to play with it. I said, OK, well, what about if we bring your computers as a UN? You know, because we have eight programs and we provide assistance and we monitor your progress from the day you get that computer to the day that we evaluate the product. And it was an amazing result. You know, i give you an example. I, I went to Kenya and I went to visit people selling uh, tulips, flowers. So I w- we went to the, the farmers, and then we realized that they were selling the flowers, the tulips, for 10 cents of dollar. And then a change, a change by computer in Rotterdam, and they were trading for 3 and $4 per tulip. So when the farmer realized that this was such an enormous difference between what they were getting and what the uh, intermediaries were getting they immediately wanted to connect the computer directly to that database so they could themselves analyze the price before they negotiate the tooling. So information is power, right? And that was my first concern was, okay, we need to decentralize information from wealthy countries where the information is because information is power. And without decentralizing information, there's absolutely no point to develop this internet, which was emerging at that time as, as the solution, if we are not able... To, to decentralize information. And at that moment, I met actually James Ban lee You know, James Ban lee is the inventor of the World Wide Web. He invented it in Geneva, in the CERN. We were sharing the same data centers at that time. And Teams' vision was the same. It was decentralized the knowledge. So knowledge does not reside in a computer. And everything is so easy to connect because you connect through the hyperlinked environment. There is not a centralized server, a centralized organization then controls data and only gives you the data if they wish to give it. We need to have a way of distributing data that is not conditional to authorization. And that was the breakthrough. That was the breakthrough of the World Wide Web. It was not the internet. Internet was the military ARPANET infrastructure that connects physically those servers, but the web was what made those servers interconnected without the need to centralize data in one place. And at that moment I saw, okay, for first time humans, and this is the beginning of the transhuman code of thinking process, humans have a say in whatever third or fourth industrial revolution. We need to bring human opinion in how we build society. Before that, society was built by an elite. The entire world until now has been developed by 40 million people, maybe. People that they learn in universities, people that they have the money, but we excluded 6 billion people, 6 billion minds that could have contributed to that discussion if they had the possibility and the tools to do so. That was not available at that time. And that was how I shaped it. It started to shape the importance to whatever we're going to do, and this is now becoming exponential, and this is a big lesson now to the metaverse and everything else. Let's take the humans as all responsibility. We are humans for humans. We cannot let us in this kind of utopia that technology can solve everything by jeopardizing the humanity, right? And and that was my beginning of the thinking, And I was in the right place because the UN has the mandate to protect humans, right?
1: So we we just actually, uh, Deb Donick on our show, and it was interesting to chat with her about that, you know, the humanity and the ethics in, in technology as well. You know, one of the things that, I didn't get into the security arena until like 2000. And there was a lot of things happening. I was working with FireEye and Checkpoint and things were pretty advanced, but we still had major problems and we still had major problems. How did you decide that it was time for you to leave the UN and start your company WiseKey? What was that transitional point?
0: So, before leaving the UN, I developed something we call ETOs, Electronic Trading Opportunity. That was my time, I was working for the trading part of the UN. This was the largest ever electronic commerce exchange. So if you are a company and you have a product, you just send an email at that time. That was the beginning of email. That was not yet email and you know now. And we created an e-commerce uh, capability. Actually, a school for you is that Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, at that time, he was working for muc for the Chinese uh, Ministry of Commerce. And we were sending to him trade opportunities on a daily basis. And he transformed those trade opportunities into what it is now, Alibaba, you know, which is the richest. So you see the potential and the value of information. We were sending information to everybody, and this became one of the most successful projects of the UN and with more impact. Because if you're a trader in Zambia and you send a trade opportunity, and suddenly you get five thousand people who want to buy your product, you're happy, right? And you will not be able to do it yourself because if you send it yourself, it will be viewed as a spam, and and you will not even have the capability of doing it. So it was at that moment that I started to realize how important was the uh, certification of information. And I actually wanted to continue developing that thinking in the UN, but but the UN is, is when you're trying to industrialize a project, it stops, right? It's a glass ceiling there where you want to really do some kind of Project. Then you have the politics get involved. You know the Russians and the Americans and the French do not agree on the uh, Security Council. So, so those things execution is very poor in the UN. It's good for launching ideas. It's good to create the consensus. But if you really want to industrialize any idea, you have to do it in the private sector. So I was forty, and I I just took the risk. I say, okay, you know, I really want to do it. I discover the problem, and I want to find the solution. And I want to design a company around that solution. So I left the UN, I took my pension fund, and I invested in WiseKey. That was kind of a daring situation. You know, I have six kids, and at that time I have four already. So to take that decision was kind of uh, important decision in my life. But, but I knew that if I continue working on how to protect human data, human identity, one day it will pay off.
1: One of the biggest areas of technological change, an area where Carlos feels passionate about protecting our digital rights, is in Web3. What's Web3, you ask? Web1 in the 90s was early internet, which gave us a graphical user interface with the World Wide Web, but was basically read-only. Web2, the last 20 years, was the age of the big tech platform and the rise of Google, Facebook, and the like, where the companies owned and exploited user data. Web3 is where we are now, the current stage of development, and it relies on encrypted blockchain technology, which includes the metaverse. In Web3, users own their own data. Here's how Carlos explains the need for a new approach to identity protection.
0: Humans are viewed as a consumers for the industry. Facebook doesn't see you as a human. They see you as a consumer. Google doesn't see you as a human. They don't even care. They don't care about your humanity. They care about your pocket money, right? They will use you as far as you are a consumer. So the entire web society, the Web 2.0, was designed around converting human into consumers. And there's where we came with a different approach. We said, no, 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 we are not only consumers, we are humans, we are you know, flesh and blood, and we have a human interaction. Let's not only judge us by our capacity in consuming, and that was not understood at that time. It took a while. Now it's happening because the metaverse and all the abuses that has happened during the uh, Web 2.0 revolution. But at that time, it was not clear building a business model in protecting the human identity. At that time, was kind of foolish.
1: So let's talk about the code of ethics. Is the code of ethics that you established for Weiske, your company? How different is it is than the transhuman code, which you have like seven pillars of privacy, consent, identity, ability, ethics, good, and democracy. Is there a bridge between the two?
0: So wise key. Wise means wall internet secure key. It's a key, right? A key is a cryptographic key because we develop a key, a cryptographic key is the ground zero of all technologies that secure the internet. This is like Verisign, RSA, Symantec. So Wesky is one of those companies. We develop our own cryptography root key. That's why they name key. But we gave ourselves from day one, and who says me, says all my staff and even shareholders and board to not use that key for detrimental human activities. So we have it's beyond ethics. It's not only ethics. It's also, you know, I organized in a few days in Davos the TECACOR, which is a Microsoft initiative. Owesky is one of the uh, original members, which are cybersecurity companies that we have signed a chart that our technology will not be used for something which is detrimental to people. So we will not use our technology, we will not sell to governments, and we will use that to attack other governments and things like that. So, so that vision of using the code, the uh, technology code, the key the cryptographic key, as a way of securing the internet, protecting the people. Obviously, we are a company, we need to sell and we need to make money, but with selling ourselves to forces that could eventually convert that key into something we don't want as a company to allow. So, So that actually created a process where my first client were international organizations, were governments. Actually, we teamed very early with Microsoft at that time. Microsoft has also a, a very interesting approach to that. And that has been the beginning of the company. While I was developing WiseKey, then I, I started to realize that we were actually one of only companies that did not want to enter into the consumer aspect of that means. You have a digital identity, because that's the conclusion of having a cryptographic root piece, then we can issue your identity, the identity of who you are. So not, not your Facebook connect, not your credit card, not your bank account, not your nationality, your identity, your digital identity, your birth certificate to the internet. The day that you enter the internet, you need an identity, right? And currently, users do not issue that identity themselves platforms use that identity for you. So you become dependent on the platform. So the vision was, no, 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 let's return that identity to the person. The person should own their own identity. And we were against a lot of forces, right? Because if you own your identity, the platform cannot data mine you, cannot read your personal data, cannot geocalize you, cannot because you're going to encrypt everything with that key. But if you are to solve your problem, you will disappear. So that was the beginning. Now, the transhuman code is an extrapolation of that. It's to say, okay, if as a human, I own my code, my code is mine, right? It's like your birth certificate. I don't know, in the, in the United States, yeah, it's the same thing. If you burn anywhere, you they're going to give you a birth certificate. And a birth certificate is yours. And then you use that document when you get married, when you have any other paperwork, will go back to that birth certificate, right? Nobody can tell you you're not a human. People can tell you you are not an American, or you don't have the passport, or you don't have a bank account anymore, or you lost your insurance, that they can tell you. But they cannot tell you you are not a human, right? That's your own property. So the transhuman codes work on the basis of say if you as a human, you own your identity. And then everything else on that identity becomes a right to use that identity, what we call an attribute, financial attribute, e-commerce attribute. With that identity, I can do many things. I can single sign on, which is what we do without the need to delegate that ownership to somebody else. Because if I do it, I lose my control of my digital self. And this at the beginning no, was not understood. Now it is understood. Talk about avatars on the metaverse. Talk about Facebook owning your identity and collecting your data and selling your data to somebody without your consent. All that happened at the end of the web 2.0, which was in the last five years. That was not obvious when I created scheme. But that was the apport. The apport was saying, we're going to grow slower. We're not gonna. We are not gonna become eventually exponential, but we're gonna do it properly. At the end of the day, we will get the benefits.
1: Hey there, istana I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future, like Brian Seeley, who, in an effort to reveal a critical vulnerability in Google Maps, hacked the FBI.
0: That's when it hit me. It was like FBI, Secret Service. At no point did my brain go, maybe don't. I really, I mean, looking back, it worked out, but I hope that voice decides to be a little louder this next time, it's like, hey, maybe don't. Don't wiretap the Secret Service and the FBI to prove a point because people have gone to jail for ever for a lot less.
1: I learned something, actually a lot of somethings every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers, they're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So one of the things that fascinated me about the book is that you actually have, it was the first book I ever read that gave me an explainer how to read this book or how to use this book. And I was really surprised I thought I was thinking it's going to be all technology and innovation, but you talk about the fundamentals like water, food, health, transportation, you know, infrastructure, things within governments, the way a photographer looks at light, right? So let's talk about the 3.0, the metaverse. What does that bring? And how do you apply the transhuman code to the metaverse?
0: The book idea was not to... Write a technology book. there's many available there and much better. It was a book that opens the dialogue. Once you understand the fundamental issue that you should own your identity, that is yours and not of the platform, and you can use the platform, you can let it, the platform is like a consent. You can invite a person to your house to dinner one day. But that's it. The next day, he has to ask you permission to go back again to your house for dinner. In the internet doesn't work that way. Once you give away the permission to something, it's granted. You cannot take it back, right? So we, we needed to transform that into the code. What means that we want companies, the United Nations, international companies, AI companies, to program that into their code so humans are protected at the code level. Not only talking blah, blah, blah. No. You put a line of code in your code that shows that humans are protected. And if you don't do that, we will not give you the permission to sell your product. As we do with cars, we do with medicine. If I invent a new medicine and the FIA does not grant it approval because they have to certify that that medicine is not dangerous for consumer, I will not be able to sell my medicine. That does not happen in technology. I can invent a very hostile app put it on the market, destroy the life of people, and there was no will be no consequences for me. So that was the idea of the code. We have to change the legislation, the way international standards work, the way of people work. On the basis of that, let's open the discussion. If we achieve that, what will be the consequences for other things than human need? I mean, humans even if we are in the metaverse. you know, I just had a, a call with the Vatican on the metaverse uh, just a few hours ago. And you know, one of the discussions was about where, where is the human right on the metaverse? Because the vision of the metaverse is an extrapolation of the web 2.0. It's an acceleration. It means, okay, I don't want only you to be 20 hours a day in your social media channels, but in plus of that, I'm going to give you glasses and Googles so you can be logged in by default. So the metaverse business model is that you're going to wake up in the morning and be on the metaverse and only leave the metaverse because you need to, you know, to shave yourself or to clean yourself or having some food. But as soon as you do your organical needs, you go back again to the metaverse. That, that's the end game is log out of the, the metaverse. So so humans, what, what are we going to be? Are we are going to be kind of robots. Then they're going to be living in a very, you know, when you talk about the metaverse and you say to them, always looks good in the metaverse. When, when Facebook describes the metaverse, looks like a happy place. But if you are 20 years old and you are in that happy place eight hours a day, will you go back again to study? Will you go, go back again to your duties? Will you clean your room? Will you engage with friends and be uh, empathetic about problems of others? Sure, not. Because that metaverse gives you, it's like a drug, right? When you're, in, when you're on drugs, you feel immediately the reward of being on drugs. The problem is when you don't have drugs anymore and addiction kicks out, and then you are in a dependency problem. So, the metaverse, if we don't regulate the first problem, which is the one humans need to be in control of their data, control on their consent, being able with their digital identity to say yes or no we're going to be exploited in the metaverse in an exponential way.
1: Blockchain does bring a new element of trust and transparency into helping us be more responsible. What are your thoughts on the power of blockchain and how it should be used and not abused?
0: Exactly. So blockchain actually solves one problem, the concentration of power into a centralized system. And everything which is centralized and is too powerful Abuses of that power, right? Whether it's a government or it's a multinational or it's a a database. So Blockchain design is a decentralizer of everything, what we call the peer-to-peer interactions. I mean. That's why Bitcoin is so successful, is that Bitcoin is not in one place. You don't have one central organization that gives you a Bitcoin. No, it's a decentralized process. The ledgers are sitting in thousands of millions of computers, and you cannot control the entire infrastructure. You might control a few computers, but not the entire infrastructure. So blockchain not alone, because people have a kind of impression that blockchain is the solution of everything. No, blockchain is only the solution for decentralizing assets. Means that assets that they are centralizing databases are decentralized now, and anyone can verify the asset by going to the ledger. So, if I want to be sure that you have really the bitcoins you say you are, you have, I can check that without your permission. So everything becomes transparent because everything is accessible and is decentralized. Obviously the money was the first revolution with the cryptocurrencies, but many of the things are coming now. I mean, the, the, the next layer of revolution is intellectual property, which are gonna be now tokenized. What we call the tokenization of the world means everything which is paper, can be tokenized and can be stored in ledgers. And you can verify from the ledger whether that is real or not. And then the key lap of blockchain is NFTs. This is what is happening now. It's a misconception that NFTs are only for art. But actually, non-fugible tokens is the possibility to verify the identity of everything. So let's say you sell to me your house online. Uh, You can create an NFT of your house. And when I buy the NFT... I buy actually your house without even the need to have a, a paperwork in your house. Or I can buy a, a, a digital twin of a very famous piece of art because I will never have the money to buy the original, but I can own the digital twin. And the digital twin is actually one-to-one related to the original. So the blockchain is the driver of the metaverse. That's why companies, then they announce metaverse and they do not have blockchain strategy they are very suspicious, right? Because you cannot have a metaverse if you don't have a very strong blockchain strategy in your company. Companies that they announce metaverse connected to a centralized system, they are just confusing the public because the metaverse will just accelerate the issues of centralizing data. Whether if they built a metaverse based on NFTs, NFTs is actually the way that you furnish the metaverse. So if you want to create a city on the metaverse, you will have to NFT the asset first before you bring to the metaverse, right? So the combination of blockchain, digital identity, and the metaverse through the NFT is actually what I believe is bringing a solution to the Web 2.0 problem. It's the beginning of the Web 3.0, which is the revolution we are now. But very important, let's NFT the person also in the metaverse. So me as a Carlos or you as a Donna, we should be on the metaverse, but not by somebody creating our avatars with our consent. It should be under our consent and under our control. So the day I don't want to be in the metaverse anymore because I retire or I, I choose not to have anything more to do with technology, I should be able to remove me from the metaverse, remove my data, and remove everything that I created without the possibility of somebody else manipulating that for me. That's why having the human on the metaverse, and that's actually my my conference in Davos is going to be about that, is how can we bring humans to the metaverse in a way, finally, where humans can be in control of the digital life.
1: Let's talk about the importance of the World Economic Forum and Davos, which is happening at the same time. Uh, for those who you know, are not familiar with that organization, it's like a mini UN in some ways, right? What is the importance? Because I know you've been involved uh, with World Economic Forum as well in Davos and the blockchain discussions. I, I saw the agenda are definitely top of mind.
0: Yeah, especially this year because the subject is going to be trust. Amazingly, uh, the World Economic Forum had chose 2022 to highlight the need of trust because we are in a trust deficit society. We lost trust of everything. We don't trust the government anymore. We don't trust the institution anymore. We don't trust the religious leaders anymore. We don't know who to trust because we are inundated by fake news. We don't know anymore what is real, what is not, what is truth, what is lie. So, so trust trust needs to be brought into the agenda, and that's the main focus this year. I mean, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, is a lot of polemic about the World Economic Forum social media about that. But, but you know, I've been there for twenty years, going to the World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab' a big contribution is to let everyone to talk. So, so this is not a meeting of an elite and control the world. No, this is a meeting where you have a voice. So you can come from a philosopher or an environmentalist or a mathematician or a teacher or a CEO of a company, and your ideas are exposed with some others' ideas. And the fact that you are talking out of the record, that is not kind of, you know, a place where things are going to be broadcast immediately what you say. A lot of discussions help to shape agendas than otherwise would be possible to shape. You know, sometimes meetings in Davos have contributed to avoiding conflicts, you know, because in Davos, the meat of the record, if we can say. So so this aspect of multi-stakeholder and this work came from Klaus Schwab, it's a very good environment to bring discussions in a way that when you go to Davos, you might have very fixed ideas of how things should happen. And when you return from Davos, your brain plasticity starts to to work because you you have other opinions from all over the world that helps then you as a company to shape your agenda. So Davos is an inspirational place where you meet very interesting people. Obviously, Davos, and they had made a huge effort in the last years to open Davos because the same problem you just, just said before looks like the UN. Yeah, it has an aspect of centralization of information then sometimes say, this is a black box. I, I would like to see what's happening there. But actually, in the last years, that was through social media. YouTube has been publishing everything, right? So anyone that really wants to follow the debate does not need to go to Davos. They can just access that through, through social media. For me, what is important in Davos is that the agenda, which is actually, it was in Davos in 2016, then the uh, fourth industrial revolution concept came. And there was a vision of Claude Schwab when he said, everything is going to accelerate. Humans are going to accelerate. There's a lot of benefits in the fourth industrial revolution. It's actually even benefit of us using technology to augment out- ourselves, like solving some medical issues that we have. Uh, robotics might accelerate our capabilities. But I came immediately in that discussion and so, said, OK, that's great. Fourth Industrial Revolution sounds great, but let's protect the human. Actually, the, the Transhuman Code book is starting in that discussion in 2016, you know, when we launched the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So we said, okay, let's go to the Fourth Industrial Revolution, a lot of benefits, but let's put the human in the center of gravity. Everything should go around the human and not the human around the things, right? And, and that's, that's a compromise because then you are able to explain that to companies, multinational and others to say, guys, Abandon business models on where humans are going to be slaves of information and technology. Abandon that business. If you make a lot of money now, move away from converting human only into consumers, and you will see, maybe you're going to have your shares down for a while, but once humans learn that your company is protecting then they're going to invest in you because we are humans, right? We are here to protect ourselves. So if I know a company is doing something good for me as a human— And is allowing the human race to prevail in society. We have been here for two hundred thousand years, and we're still here. What about if somebody works and helps us to be here for the next two hundred thousand years, and not becoming robots and completely useless?
1: And do you think? I I say this. I'm just going to say it. Are the Zoomers and and maybe the X, Ys, and Zs going to fix some of the things that the Boomers and and millennials kind of mucked up? I mean, are we all in this together? And we all need to be more conscious in decisions and making sure that we bring trust back in. We have trust in, in like the ESG scenario with inclusion and equity in the workforce. Are we all responsible for this?
0: Yeah, Uh, and I think to be honest, we have a lot of learned from the young generation because young generations are more. I mean, I am a baby boomer, and actually, the boomer generation has contributed to a lot of the problems we have, and and we have been very kind of uh, slow in recognizing those problems. Our ego is so big that we have been more or less not be willing to accept responsibility in the problems that we have created, right? Which is pollution. Uh, You know, you travel travel around the world and you see the disorganization. The new generation is more, they have three things I think they're essential. First of all, in my generation, if we have three or four people as a friend, it was already difficult to handle, you know, this generation can talk to 200, 300 people interactively, and they know how to do it. With social media, they know exactly what information should give to that person, but not to this person. They handle complexity in a much better way to us. Secondly, it's the first generation that knows how to use technology better than the previous generation, right? Normally it's the previous generation that teaches the young generation how to use things like the TV and things like that. Now it's the other way around. It's the new generation coming to our parents and say, hey, you've got to run, this is the way you do it. And the third thing, which I think is amazing, is that they are detached from materiality. In my generation, having a good car, or a good dressing well, or having, a, there was a status symbol, and maybe the only way you can even be invited into a party or going to a disco, if you have that. This generation, I know that for the NFTs, you know, we are doing NFT of digital watches, which are just uh, digital design. And, and we sold it to young people. And I asked them, why are you buying that? We are in Switzerland, I mean, you have Rolex, Patek Philippe, you have such amazing watches. Why do you buy an NFT watch without owning the original? And the answer I get is that, look, uh, an original watch uses diamond that you extract from Mother Earth, uses gold, metals that you're exploiting people in mines, uh, using leather, which you, you have to kill the animal. I don't need all that. I am happy to show my NFT watch in my mobile phone. I don't need to own the thing, right? So the concept of ownership is changing. The young generation doesn't need to own things anymore. They don't mind to show things on the metaverse. And because they can prove that ownership in the same way you will prove your ownership in a, in a physical object, they are more sustainable oriented. And I think it's, a, it's the right generation that will correct our mistakes. And despite all the conferences and the talk and the goodwill, why? Because we did not took ownership individual ownership of those sustainable goals. We go to conference, we talk about the big picture, but then we travel with a private jet to Davos while we talk in a panel on environmental uh, things, you know? So this kind of behavior doesn't make any sense. A young person will never do that. A a young activist will never travel to Davos in a private jet, right, to talk about environmental sustainability. So they are more honest, they are more proactive, they are equipped with technology we didn't have. When I built WiseKey, I needed $100 million to start the company, a young person can create a wise key type of company now or a Microsoft type of company for a fraction of that cost because technology is available, clouds are free, algorithms can be rented, artificial intelligence is open source. So you can build a company and solve a major issue without the need to have this amount of money that you needed in our generation.
1: At the conclusion of the interview, I asked Carlos about the role of future technologies in changing our society. Will we need to add extra protection to fully benefit from these advances?
0: AI now is getting bigger because we have more data. More data you have, better the AI algorithm can work. But Bitcoin and and blockchain uh, are becoming massive because there's a need of decentralization. And we have already the computers out there. So you don't have to buy the computers. You just need to connect them. IoT, we are connecting one trillion objects to the internet. Are connecting with microchips, then they are sending data to clouds, then they can be analyzed by AI. So you see, all these technologies—this is like the Avengers, you know—working together to solve one problem. They are coming with their individual talents and they are joining forces to bring the world to the next level. That's where some very smart people like Bill Gates and others—they are, they are positive about it. They are saying. OK, we have a lot of challenges up there, but the world is going to be much better. We are entering into a world that is going to be much better than the one we are working away, provided and we don't have a major cataclysm or one crazy guy that's a new goes out. But for the time being, we have all the things we need to really enter into the fourth industrial revolution and solve some of the major problems like food distribution, like water distribution, like technology distribution, and really include into the world the 6 billion people that deserve to be included in in the design of the next society. So I am positive, and I did visualize that, and I am already visualizing the next 20 years about what it's going to be, And, and I am pretty positive that we are entering into a much better world, and technology will help.
1: Around the time we talked to Carlos, he was hosting a cybersecurity roundtable at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, where tech leaders came together to talk about technology in a globalized world. Carlos's session explored new identity protocols and Web3 and the metaverse, where ownership of data and protection of our digital assets is more important than ever before. If you want to stay on top of how Carlos, Weiskey, and Casper Labs are partnering to protect human rights in the metaverse, Follow the news at WiseKey's blog, which we'll link to in the show notes. And for more on Casper, check out our interviews with blockchain experts MetaPallicar in episode 25 and Neve O'Connell in episode 45. On Before It Happened, we will continue watching the Web3 and Metaverse evolve. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, Rate and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before it happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.